The following podcast contains explicit language. Sometimes you need a certain rhetoric to get people motivated. I don't want to be just a little nice monotone character. And in many cases, I will be sure I can. I can be easily. That's easier. Honestly, doing that is easier. He, He really has a deep animosity to the press. So keep reminding yourself, this is not normal. And we've normalized it already. Less than a week after the election is over, suddenly Washington is going about its business, talking about who's going to get what jobs, and you would think that Mitt Romney had won. It's a hallucination. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who seems to have gotten his Twitter account back, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. I thought we were done with the crazy tweets. But we're not. Here's what the president-elect tweeted on Sunday. Wow, the at New York Times is losing thousands of subscribers because of their very poor and highly inaccurate coverage of the Trump phenomena. Actually, that was just one in a tweet storm where he attacked the paper for what he called their bad and dishonest coverage and claimed inaccurately that they're losing subscribers. It's just jaw-dropping. The president-elect launching social media attacks on the most respected news organization in the country. The same day, his campaign manager, now senior advisor, Kellyanne Conway, hinted at legal action against Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid for saying Trump had emboldened the forces of hate and bigotry in the United States, which, by the way, is a simple description of reality. This is the kind of thing that happens in Erdogan's Turkey or in Putin's Russia, not in the United States. Returning to the show today is the Russian-American journalist Masha Gessen. She wrote an article late last week in the New York Review of Books that I've been recommending to everybody because I think it's so important. It's called Autocracy, Rules for Survival. I have lived in autocracies most of my life, Gessen writes, and have spent much of my career writing about Vladimir Putin's Russia. I have learned a few rules for surviving in an autocracy and salvaging your sanity and self-respect. It might be worth considering them now. She joins me by phone. Masha, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Jacob. I can't say I'm happy to be on the show. I, I, I wish your show were over by now. Well, there are small consolations, and one of them is talking to people who've thought about this in a useful way. And to me, that means you. Thank you. So your first rule for surviving in an autocracy is believe the autocrat. He means what he says. Explain that a little, because... Trump is already backing away from, you know, building a wall. Maybe it won't all be a wall. Maybe it'll be a fence. We're not going to deport everybody. I mean, did he mean what he said? You know, um, my uh, my line is always, you know, I wish, I hope I'm wrong. I don't think that um, the fact that he is um, oscillating on some of the specifics of his claims is that important, unfortunately. I mean, it's better to not build a wall than to build a wall, obviously. But I think the, the, the sort of the larger force that brought him into office and, and the larger force that he represents, um, that's, that's what I mean by, you know, he, he means what he says. He means that he's going to unleash a war on immigrants in this country. He means that he is going to have total disregard for international obligations. He means that, he's going to, that he thinks that war crimes are a good thing. And the military should, should should be directed to carry them out. The specifics of those war crimes and the specifics of his war on immigrants may not be 
as important as his larger message. And he hasn't wavered in his larger message. That's the part of it that I've been most focused on because it was quite active over the weekend, but it's the part of his message that is, it's not fair to criticize me. And that took the form of him lashing out against the New York Times, claiming they're unfair, and then saying things that are totally untrue about them. His sort of implying there might be legal action against Harry Reid, his suggesting that demonstration against demonstrations against him are somehow illegitimate. I mean, he means what he says when he says this is unfair. Oh, absolutely, and he's going to do something about it. And again, you know, he may not be able to do anything about libel laws because there is no such thing as federal libel law. That doesn't mean he's not going to unleash a war in the media. He already has, and he's going to continue with ever greater power and an ever greater impact. Your your third rule in this piece is that institutions will not save you. I found that particularly dire, and you, you write, if I can just quote your piece about the press, many journalists may soon face a dilemma long familiar to those of us who have worked under autocracies, fall in line or forfeit access. There is no good solution, for journalism is difficult and sometimes impossible without access to information. Right. So um, two things about institutions and specifically the media. I think that when I was first thinking about Trump, and I was, uh, I think we talked about this in the summer, that I was really trying to sort of exercise my imagination purposefully to try to figure out what a Trump presidency might be like. And my first thought was, oh, well, but um, but the United States has much stronger institutions than any of the countries that I'm more familiar with. So it's not going to be so terrible. But I think a closer look at those institutions tells us two things. One is that they are not quite as strong as we think, and they have been sort of depreciating for decades, and especially, I'd say, over the last 15 years. Talking about the press in particular, yeah. I'm not talking about the press in particular. I'm actually talking about uh, about American institutions of democracy uh, in general, you know, with, with an ever greater concentration of power in the executive branch, the, you know, the, the, the deadlock Congress, all of that. I mean, the, 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 those are... All, all examples of degradation of American institutions that precede Trump, yeah, uh, and in some ways predict Trump. And the other, and specifically about the media, and this is to me that's the most depressing thing, as I think it is to you, which is that um, there really isn't a way to sort of say um, to solve this, this this problem. And again, we saw this during the campaign because uh, when when the media face an impossible dilemma, it really is an impossible dilemma. Right? There's a right answer to the question, do you want to fall into line or forfeit access? And the right answer is, of course, we're not going to fall into line. But that does mean you forfeit access, and that means that you become worse at doing your job than you should be. Right, because you fund, you don't know what's going on in the same way. Exactly. And, you know, there's a, there's a great temptation, and there's a very good reason uh, to, to become polemical, to, uh, to, to verge into activist journalism, which I think is a fine tradition. But it doesn't make up for lack of information. I mean, looking at at Putin's Russia, one could say, I think, that civil society beyond the media has suffered tremendously just as a a force that can can challenge him in any way. But civil society, when we're talking about beyond the press, you know, the whole whole range of non-governmental organizations and including political organizations of every kind. I mean, they're stronger here. They're a lot stronger here at the starting point. They have much better legal protections fundamentally because of the Constitution and the First Amendment. And don't you have maybe a different prediction about who's going to win this fight? I I have more hope than, than uh, than I did in Russia. 
Um, but I think there are certain things. I mean, uh, a friend of mine wrote that we need to repeal Goodwin's law. Huh. Goodwin's uh, law, obviously, being that you shouldn't automatically compare things. So you should avoid comparing thing anyone to to a Nazi or to Hitler. Right. So I think I think we should instead the opposite of Goodwin's law and basically start comparing everything to Nazi Germany and to other examples of the catastrophic uh, rise of an autocrat, specifically for the purpose of perhaps creating a first historical precedent when a society actually effectively resists the rise of an autocrat. Um, so that doesn't um, exactly answer your question, but it sort of, it, 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 I think it begins to answer it. I mean, I think that uh, civil society, in terms of legal protections, isn't actually as strong as we think it is. I think that um, it's very easy to make life much more difficult for any number of American non-governmental organizations. Actually, you know, one 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 useful place to look is is a country like Israel, which has been cracking down on civil society uh, now for a number of years um, by re- restricting funding, imposing more and more stringent reporting requirements. Something like that weakens civil society. Uh, but I think it also does something bigger, which is that you know, in addition to um, to getting in the way, uh, to interfering with the work of, of, of specific organization, organizations, it, it damages the public sphere in really profound ways. And that's really what autocrats do, is they destroy the public sphere. And so if we see on the one hand sort of a greatly weakened media, and on the other hand, institutions of civil society that are engaged in a daily battle for survival, then what we're losing in that in that battle, even if the uh, if the organizations succeed in surviving, what we're losing is the public sphere. I mean, this ties in with another point you make about the importance of of being outraged and staying outraged. But I guess another question for you, having lived under Putin and Putinism, is how do you stay outraged? I mean, nobody wants to live in a state of perpetual outrage. It's it's, it's unpleasant to be in that state, and it sort of becomes unpleasant for other people. So how do you maintain that stance without being, I don't know, unpleasant to yourself and others? I may not be the right person to ask. <laughs> well, I think you're very pleasant, Masha. You, you, you're my model for, for pleasant outrage, but I don't know how to do it myself. I think, you know, I, th- I think we need some, some sort of pact. I think we really need to draw, uh, to, and by we, you know, I, I mean sort of the, the, those of us who are engaged in this conversation right now, right? Those of us who are, who are shocked and outraged and are not on the uh, on the side of the conversation that that uh, that is arguing let's give let's give the guy a chance um right and let's keep an open mind i think that the pack needs to be something like let's take stock of what we have like the current normal and resist the imposition of a new normal mm-hmm. uh i don't i don't know if that if that makes sense but uh, and i don't know if that kind of Hacks can actually be in any way codified, but I think it would be incredibly useful. Like, for example, and I think I, I think that's actually something like this is what the New York Times tried to do with its letter to um, uh, to its readers. Yeah, uh, signed by the publisher and editor, which basically said, "This is how we're used to doing our work, and this is how we expect to continue to be doing our work." I think I, I think it's 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 exactly the right impulse. And then, if we sort of take stock of what we're protecting, and have an, a common understanding of of the fear, right? Yeah. Of what we fear being destroyed, then that outreach can be constructive and maybe not terribly unpleasant. But again, you know, I don't know that that pleasant 
is, is an end goal in itself. I do think that, that staying energized is an end goal because I think that, um, uh, and I think we're seeing this now, the way that autocracies control people um, is, is through the imposition of the state of low-level dread. Right when 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 your planning horizon becomes really short and and all you can think of is, is, is sort of daily survival. I think that's what I was sort of talking about about the civil society organizations as well. Once you're engaged in this daily struggle, it's it's important. Uh, I mean, it's not just important; it's essential. But it keeps you from seeing the bigger picture, and it keeps you from planning, and it keeps you from being productive in the long run. And I think outrage is actually much better for that uh, than dread. Yeah. I mean, I think normalization is, is this sort of term we've been hearing a lot. And, and, and the way you put it, of there being – we needing a kind of pact to reject or resist normalization is, is really central because everyone's natural – the natural gravitational tendency is to think – Things are going to be okay. The president's the president. He's not as bad as we thought. Never mind that stuff he said before. You know, to kind of go back to doing business the way we're used to, used to doing business. And what you're saying, and I, I strongly agree with, is we have to say, no, normal is what we had before. Normal is when we had full respect for the press and for the rights of assembly and for civil society and for the different branches of government, not in one in which we have a process or a, a pattern of uh, little assaults and attacks and then some retreat. Exactly. And I think, you know, I think the impulse to, to, uh, to normalize is itself normal. I mean, that's how humans survive, right? And I've actually been obsessed with this uh, throughout my whole career. Uh, the particular object of my obsession is of how historical catastrophes unfold over time. Like, what happens between, you know, the moment that all the Jews are herded into the ghetto and the moment that the ghetto is liquidated? Yeah. I mean, there was like three years in there when people were trying to lead lives. And every step of the way, they tried to normalize the particular state in which they were being held. And see, I'm, I'm, I'm modeling the sort of uh, the imposition of the opposite of Goodwin's law here. But... Um, but I, th- I think that uh, I've certainly experienced that living in Russia, that sort of um, the world didn't end yesterday uh, when we thought it was going to, and now we can live in this new condition. Maybe it's not quite as good as it, as, as it was before, but it's got its good points, and um, uh, and it, you know it gets like-minded people together, which is wonderful, uh, and um, uh, and the food still tastes good, and uh, as President Obama said, the sun will still uh, still comes up in the morning. Um, and so we get used to it until uh, until the next moment when um, when one more right is taken away, one more restriction is placed on people, and then you get used to that too. And that there has to be you know, a large enough group of people that takes on the role of saying we are not going to get used to this. Yeah. Well, another one of your rules is don't make compromises. But I was thinking, and that's one where I'm not sure I agree with you because. Critics like us don't have to make compromises, but, you know, I'd rather have non-Steve Bannon-type Republicans working in places in the administration and in the government. I mean, we can stay morally pure, but if they stay morally pure, it's so much the worse for all of us. It's a really hard question, and I don't know that I, you know, that I have the courage of my convictions to really argue this point as strongly as my other points. Uh, and you're right, it's the most problematic of, of all of them. But I think that uh, in, in, in my ideal world, 
what people would do is they would they would set down their own line in the sand and and keep to it. So if I were, you know, let's say I work for, you know, the National Endowment for Humanities, which is an institution where people have long careers and uh, uh, and have, have worked there through many different administrations and and have a mission, and they really uh, you know, they, they 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 do good. They administer wonderful programs, um, and so to expect them to say. I'm not going to cooperate with this administration um, is probably, which and probably any one of those people feels that it would be completely self-defeating to just surrender that position. You hasten the outcome that you're worried about. Exactly. So I, I think in my ideal world, each one of those wonderful people in the NIH would say, this is, I'm, 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 I'm setting down the, um, the rules right now. If A, B, or C happens, I'm out of here. And I'm going to exit loudly. I think that's 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 what I'm trying to get at with this uh, idea of the uh, idea of don't make compromises, because as the sort of the process of normalization gets underway, and as uh, as people as every every one of us gets into a personal nego- negotiation with oneself, every step of the way it gets more and more difficult to sort of keep keep your your bearings about you. Yeah. So for people who are going to face this kind of choice, decide what your bottom line is, draw your line in the sand, and then when it's crossed, follow through on your promise to yourself not to go any farther. That's that's what I think would be ideal. It's easy for me to say because I'm not in that position. Your last rule, Masha, was remember the future. It's the only positive part of your piece. Tell tell me how that how what that actually meant in the context of of uh, Putin Putin's Russia. Well, in the context of Putin's Russia, it hasn't been terribly useful. Um, <laughs> uh, but but I think I I I I think that um, what uh, some of what I've been writing about in in my, in my other journalism is the efforts on the part of a number of Russian activists and intellectuals to try to figure out what happens after. Because eventually there will be an after, if for no other reason than that nothing lasts forever. And the landscape that they are going to face, or that we're going to face, because I'm a Russian citizen too, um, is just so dire. Uh, there's nothing. There's nothing there that promises any kind of recovery. And by that, I mean, you know, the, the, the electoral institutions have been destroyed. The media have been destroyed, but also the culture has been destroyed. The language has been destroyed. How do you set about recovering um, a, a culture and a country when you don't even have words in which to discuss the things that need to be discussed? So my point is, if we need to start imagining that time now. And the purpose of that for me would be to reinforce the other five rules, because every time we compromise. Every time we normalize something that shouldn't be normal, we also lessen the chances of, uh, of recovery when it's over. I've been speaking to the journalist Masha Gessen. Her piece on the New York Review of Books website is called Autocracy, Rules for Survival. Masha, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Jacob. Great to talk to you. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichta is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.